continue in Mark chapter 15. So we're down to just four sermons. This is our 63rd week that we've spent in the gospel of Mark. And we are down to four sermons. We're at the very heart of the gospel. Today we're studying the death of Jesus. Next week we're going to study the burial of Jesus. And then the resurrection of Jesus will be after that. And then the last Sunday in May we're going to study about the ascension of Jesus. Just such an important month of study. We're right at the heart of what the gospel message is. Jesus died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. He resurrected on the third day and then 40 days later ascended into heaven. That changes everything. That is the gospel message. How well do you know the details of it? How well do you know the significance of it? And how well do you apply that truth to your life? Maybe those are some of the questions we should be asking ourselves this month. But this is a uh, perfect Sunday. This is the perfect weather to preach this sermon. Studying the death of Jesus as thunder rumbles in the background. Uh, Just an an amazing uh, opportunity for us to even have this ambience (laughs) in, in the background as we think about the death of Christ. But... You know, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, this is the truth that we live with as we face death. Each and every one of us here is facing death. You are walking towards death. We have a death dilemma before us. And when we uh, digest all of the truth that is in the death of Jesus, it solves our death dilemma. And so we don't like to think that death is coming for us, right? Just this past week... uh, Nolan sent uh, Amanda and I a text of an, of an actress, uh, and, and what was striking to him about that picture, who it is is irrelevant, but what was striking a, about this picture was it was a present-day photo of her that she shared on social media, and what struck him is that she was old, because this actress was famous like 20 years ago, and she has a very well-known part in a TV sitcom, and so, you know, when we, when we know actors and actresses for a certain role like that, they are forever young. Like, for my generation, like, Michael J. Fox is still, you know, 18 years old, right? And then you see a picture of Michael J. Fox, and you're like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> like, well, life, age, time went by. And so, no one sends us this text, and like, wow, look how old she is. And my response to him was, death's coming for you too, buddy. That's what it's like to live with a pastor as a dad. That's the kind of conversations you have. But that's true, but death's coming for all of us. I mean, it, it, it levels the playing field for us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you're about. It doesn't matter what you have, what you want. You're going to die, and there's nothing you can do about it. So, wow, what a great way to start a sermon, right? But, you know, we, we can try to avoid this all we want. We can try to... Uh, Avoid even thinking about it or talking about it, but then we're confronted with it eventually, no matter what we do. Yesterday, I preached a sermon for Mark Dobbins' mom, who lived to be almost 94 years old. Wow, an an incredibly long life. But her, her her life passed by like a vapor, when you think about it. In the grand scheme of things, 94 years can go by just like that. And what seemed so impossibly far away is now her reality right now in heaven but we all may think of death as something that's impossibly far away we all um, may not want to even talk about it but we will be confronted with it sooner or later and death is something that is at the very center 
of what we hold to be sacred in our lives, most sacred. Death is at the center of the gospel message. So much so that the symbol of our faith is a mechanism for death, which is really, really weird when you think about it. We are are so numb to that, seeing crosses everywhere. People tattoo crosses on their body. They wear the cross necklace. They have crosses in their home. And crosses are all over uh, buildings when you drive through any town in America. It's a mechanism of death because death is at the center of this gospel message. Whenever my, two of my boys got baptized this past fall, I gave them a gift, and it was a cross necklace. Congratulations, boys, you're baptized. Here's a symbol of a mechanism of death to wear around your, your neck. Don't lose that. You can think about death every day. It's strange. It's weird. But this symbol of death, it points to a death, the death of Jesus on the cross. And when you're a Christian, that particular death means everything to you because it is the answer to our death dilemma that we're all in. And we're going to look at that death specifically today because there's a lot of hope there. And just as we've been doing, as we've been walking just one paragraph at a time, we're going to look at some of these details And I want to explain to you and point out different ways in which the significance of those details help us to understand more so what's happening in the text. So we did that when we studied the gore and the horror of the mockery and torture of Jesus. We did that when we studied the events surrounding and leading right up to the crucifixion. And now we're going to study the very last moments before Jesus dies. And we are given some very remarkable details that if we stop and think about him for just a moment, it will help us to have a richer understanding of the significance of the death of Christ. All of the details are there. All of the ingredients for this profound meaning are right there in the text. And when you just stop, pause, and reflect on each one of those details and think about what they're meant to make us think about, the death of Christ takes on a ton of meaning. So, We're going to work through one paragraph, Mark 15. We're actually uh, not going to get quite all the way through it. It's 33 through 39, Mark 15, verses 33 through 39. And I'm going to point out just three details. There's there's more than three details, but I'm going to focus our time primarily on three details there. And I just feel like when I preach through Mark, uh, I, I I don't want to oversimplify it, but I want to be efficient because that's how Mark writes. Mark is writing a very efficient gospel, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and he just wants us to know these details. And I want to preach like that because that's how he writes. And so the three things we're going to look at today are this. Number one is we're going to look at the last words of Jesus before he died. Number two, we're going to look and think about the fact that the curtain in the temple was torn. And the third detail we're going to examine is the centurion soldier who, upon the death of Jesus, says, truly this man was the Son of God. So do you have a cross around your neck today? Do you have a cross tattooed on your body? Do you have a cross in your home or somewhere that means something to you? Well, if, if you really want that symbol of death to have great meaning and great significance when you look at it, this paragraph right here is helpful. This paragraph right here will give that mechanism of death a tremendous amount of value and meaning. So we're going to look at verses 33 through 37 
to get started. And, and the title of the paragraph that I'm reading is The Death of Jesus. So let's start at verse 33. It says, And when the sixth hour came, had come, that there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So there's a lot of details there. I want to focus primarily on the last words of Jesus. But first, did you notice that there was darkness over the whole land? There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Literal darkness in the middle of the day. But it's packed with a lot of symbolism. Okay, so when I see something supernatural happening, happening in the text. I don't know if you're inclined to do this, but I, I find myself doing this all of the time. I, I tell you this all the time. I am a natural skeptic. I, uh, I'm, I'm pessimistic. I'm, I'm skeptical of almost anything that I hear. Any time someone wants to tell me uh, what, what is truth to them, I'm, I, the first thing I do is question it. I, it's just how my mind is wired to think. I can't help it. So Sometimes when I go through and I'm reading in scripture and I read about a miracle, something that is supernatural, I am inclined to try to find a natural explanation for something that is supernatural. I just do it every time. And it's funny that when I read through uh, uh, commentaries and things like that, a lot of scholars do the same thing. What kind of darkness could this be? How did it happen? How was it possible? Well, the answer is that it's a miracle. It should stop there, but some of us just can't. How did this happen? Was it a solar eclipse? A lot of people think it was. Makes a lot of sense to think it was, except for the fact that it was a full moon at Passover. So if you remember in your science class, I think a solar eclipse, it can't be a full moon in a solar eclipse in the same day. That would be impossible. It would take a miracle for there to be a solar eclipse while there's a full moon out. Well, maybe that's what happened. Sounds good to me. It's a miracle. Supernatural. It's not possible. A lot of other scholars will say, well, this is, this is just a moment of intense cloud cover. That's how there's darkness right now, just like what we have right now. But we've got a ton of clouds out there right now, but it's not dark. It's still daytime. It's daylight, despite the fact that there's so many clouds. I've seen some really, really dark clouds, but never to the point in the middle of the day that I think, wow, it's pure darkness out here. Some other scholars will say, well, it's likely this was a sandstorm. And I'm like, well, you know, that's a detail I think Mark would have mentioned. Like, sandstorms are a mess. They can blot out the sun pretty, pretty good, uh, maybe more, even more so than a storm cloud. But I, I just think it, it could be any three of those options. You're missing the point. You're getting distracted if you get lost in trying to explain that, which is supernatural with the natural explanation. Uh, because the point is, this was a supernatural darkness. And this has happened in a similar way at his birth. Remember the scene of the shepherds in the field at night. In the darkness of night, angels appeared to the shepherds. So at the birth of Jesus, it said that there was light. It was bright light. So in the darkness of night, all of a sudden at his birth, there was light. Because the light was entering the darkness. And now at his death, just the opposite is occurring. This is... From noon to three in our time, the middle of the day, 
The noonday sun is blackened out. This is darkness, supernatural darkness at his death. Certainly a lot of symbolic meaning with that literal darkness there, right? So, so also, remember why they are in Jerusalem? This is the Passover feast. What do they do at the Passover feast? Well, we've been studying that for months. I mean, they, they come into Jerusalem every year. They celebrate the Exodus, and they reenact the 10th plague of the Exodus back when they were escaping slavery from the Egyptians. And so in the 10th plague, we see that the, the angel of death is, is passing through to kill the firstborn son of every family. But if you sacrificed a lamb, the Passover lamb, and mark your doorpost with the blood of that lamb, that angel of death would pass over your home, sparing your firstborn and your family. And so they were coming to Jerusalem to reenact that 10th plague. They sacrificed the lamb. They pretended like they were in the Exodus. They were getting dressed just like they would have been dressed back then. They would have eaten, eaten the entire Passover meal, and every component of that meal reminded them of something from the Exodus. But remember what the ninth plague was before they sacrificed that lamb in Exodus. Well, the ninth plague was a plague of darkness. So before the Passover lamb in Exodus was sacrificed, there was a plague of darkness. And now, in the time of Christ, here's the symbolism that's supposed to jump out of the page at us. Now the ultimate Passover lamb, who is Jesus, just before he is slain on the cross, there is a plague of darkness. Three hours of darkness while he's on the cross. And he cried with a loud voice then at the end of that three hours. And he says, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani. And then Mark translates that for us. Now remember, Mark's not writing in Aramaic, he's writing in Greek. And we have an English translation. So to help us catch what Mark was trying to do, the translators leave the Aramaic in Aramaic so that we can know Mark really wanted his readers to hear those Aramaic words so it could tell them something. Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are some of the last words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's two reasons we get that Aramaic translation. Here they are. Number one, so that we would understand what's happening with the bystanders. Did you notice what the bystanders said after Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The bystander says, hey, he's calling to Elijah to save him. So we have the Aramaic there to understand why they may have thought he was calling for Elijah. Because Eloi, Eloi, oh, sounds like Eli. He's, he's, he's calling for Elijah. Eli, Eli. He must be saying, Eli, Eli, Elijah, come down and save me from this uh, horrible circumstance. So did they really think he was calling for Elijah? Well, perhaps. And, and then one of the bystanders gets a reed, puts a sponge on it, gets some, some sour wine, maybe in an effort to say, hey, let's keep him alive long enough to see if Elijah really comes or not. That might be what's happening. But I think it's more likely that the mockery of Jesus is continuing right now. Remember the mockery, the relentless. They are relentless. Every single detail, I think, contributes to the fact that he was 
uh, undergoing just extreme mockery the entire time. I think they heard him right when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But since Eloi, Eloi sounds like Eli, they wanted to mock him. Oh, maybe, listen, listen, Eloi, Eloi, he's, he's hollering for Elijah. Hurry, let's keep him alive so we can see Elijah, guys. So the, the comedy of that mockery is continuing likely in this moment just before he dies. But the second reason we are, we are given the Aramaic translation, other than so we can know what the bystanders, bystanders are doing, we're given the Aramaic translation because the first readers of this gospel would have uh, heard some very, very familiar words right there. Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani was something that they would have recognized. You and I don't recognize it as much because we don't know our Bibles as well. But when we read Jesus dying on the cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe you're like me. The first time I read that, I'm thinking, oh, no, Jesus is giving up. Oh, no, this is a cry of defeat. Well, wait a second. He prophesied his death and his resurrection, but in this moment, it sounds like he's giving up. Like, is he questioning the Father? Why have you forsaken me? Is he mad? Is he doing what we do? We love to project, project ourselves onto to God and think that he's behaving like us, but he doesn't think like we do. But I worried the first time I read that, that Jesus was crying out a cry of defeat here, that he was questioning if he was doing anything right or, 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 or if his life actually meant anything at all. And nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was... This was not a cry of defeat. It was a cry of triumph. It was a cry of triumph, but I want to be careful with that. So these Aramaic words were familiar because they come from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a, is a passage of Scripture that I've encouraged you to read for weeks. If you want to read a good example of a Messianic, Old Testament Messianic prophecy, you need to read Psalm 22 in particular uh, whenever you're thinking about the, the death and crucifixion of Jesus. Just... Go to Psalm 22 in, in your, in your uh, devotional time. Go there with a highlighter, having just studied this uh, chapter. And, and just mark, circle every time you, you read something that is familiar to the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And it's astounding how many things are happening in Psalm 22 that would make you think of the events of Jesus on the cross and the events leading up to Jesus on the cross. And it's incredible because it was written by David, a thousand years before Jesus was on that cross. It was written by David probably seven to eight hundred years before the crucifix as a mechanism of death was even invented. Nobody knew what a, crucif what a crucifix was uh, in, in David's day. That method of killing people hadn't, hadn't even been thought of yet. But David wrote that psalm in pure agony. And so the first line of Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And David, when you read the psalms, this is why they're so comforting. It's an emotional roller coaster. I mean, David's often in agony, and then he's praising God. And then he's in agony, and then he's praising God. And it feels like real life when you're reading through psalms. And so... David, when you read in Psalm 22, it's starting out in just extreme agony. And when you read through all of those details, it's, again, full of agony. But by the time you get to the end of Psalm 22, what you find is that David, though he is in extreme agony, he is praising God. Everything's wrong. 
Everything's horrible, but I'm praising God in the midst of it all. Is this not the perfect psalm to be on the mind of Christ as he is dying there on the cross? Could anything go more wrong with the torture, with the mockery, people laughing at him, making fun of him even as he's saying his last words? And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he knew, without a doubt, that that is a psalm that led to the confidence, uh, a psalm that led to security, a psalm that led to assurance that despite whatever your circumstances are, he's not questioning God. He's, he's displaying faith in God. So I think when you read Jesus saying, and think about Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's, there's two things I think you need to do. One, don't take anything away from the agony of Jesus in that moment. He is being forsaken. He's being forsaken for our sins. It was terrible. He is crying out in pure agony. Don't take anything away from that. So when we say that, that's a, that that quotation of Psalm 22 is a cry of triumph, be careful with that, that you don't take anything away from the agony of Christ. But also, don't take anything away from the confidence that Jesus has in the Father in that moment. Don't take anything away from the resolve that we know Jesus has to be there on that cross, because he did, in fact, prophesy that that was going to happen multiple times leading up to that point. Now, we know from the other Gospels, that's not the only thing that Jesus said when he was dying. That's the line that Mark tells us. But in John's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, we get a couple more details. In John's Gospel, we get another very important line. Jesus says, it is finished. Mission accomplished. In Luke's Gospel, we get this line. In addition to these two phrases, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those aren't things that are said by someone who has lost their confidence in the Father, are they? Those aren't things that are said by someone who has been defeated and, and is questioning their life. Those are lines that are said by someone who has complete trust in the Father, even in the worst circumstances possible, they can praise God. So having finished the work of salvation on the cross for the work of atonement, he, he breathed his last breath. What a joy to know that Jesus finished it. He finished the work of our atonement. You and I are so tempted to add to that work. You're going to fight the rest of your life as a Christian the notion that you need to add to the work of Jesus. You just are. And that's why you have to constantly go back to Scripture, because if you don't, you'll start to think, God probably can't love me anymore because my performance hasn't been that good. You have to go to Scripture to be corrected of that over and over, because you're going to fail in life, because you're not perfect, because you're full of sin. You have sin in your past, mistakes you can't undo. You have sin right now that you're trying to put to death, but you're, you're unsuccessful. You have sin in your future that you don't even know about yet. And so because we live in this state of brokenness, in this state of being not perfect, we're prone to think that God can't love us because we can't make up for all the wrong that we do all the time. We, we can't do enough good fast enough to undo the bad that we so naturally do all the time, right? And so we think, man, am I really a believer? I feel like a fraud. That's probably one of the most common things I hear from, from Christians. They feel fraudulent because we claim to be 
lovers of Christ. We claim to be lovers of the gospel, children of God. We know we should live in a life of holiness, but we are still sinful. And so we doubt that God loves us. We feel fraudulent. We tell ourselves that we aren't good enough. We tell ourselves that there's just just no way. I say one thing and I do something else. Well, Paul tells us we're going to have that experience. Paul says, that was my experience. You're probably going to feel that way too. And we have to keep coming back to the gospel to remember that the work of atonement for the sin that you were constantly playing a part in has been atoned for. It's finished. The work of atonement is finished. When you do something bad tomorrow, you can't atone for that. If you're a believer, if you are abiding in Christ, if you're a believer of the gospel, that sin has been atoned for. We're going to spend months in the book of Galatians, so if you don't believe me, stay tuned for that. <laughs> you're, going to get a, you're going to get that message over and over and over again, and Paul gets really frustrated with people who want to fight back against that truth, and he's going to rebuke us in the whole letter from being prone to that. But Mark doesn't want us to miss these details, and the gospel writers don't want us to miss these details so we can have assurance, not so that we can question ourselves. Jesus is too good of a savior. He's, he's too good at what he did. He finished the work in its entirety. Okay, but there's another detail here that Mark doesn't want us to miss, and it, it feeds into that thought to help us really drive home the point that it is a finished work of atonement. This detail is going to help you understand that. Look at verse 38. This is when, right when Jesus died. This is what happened. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Isn't that a seemingly obscure detail? Well, it's packed with a big-time meaning. In the same way that there was supernatural darkness while Jesus was hanging on the cross, there was a supernatural tearing of the curtain in the temple. And that seems, again, real obscure, really random. Jesus died, and the drapes need replaced in the temple. Why are we given that detail? Well, that's because that curtain, like, to us, like, why are we talking about curtains all of a sudden? Well, that, that particular curtain is something that really would have stood out to someone in the first century who was familiar with the temple or with someone who's very familiar with Old Testament uh, lingo. That, that curtain was the curtain that you had to go through in order to enter the Holy of Holies, which you would have never dared even attempt. Remember when we talked about the temple and how it works? I like to think of it like an onion. It's not shaped like an onion, but it has layers so when you're going to the temple, the, like the outer layer, that was the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles are just anybody who's not Jewish. So anyone who is a believer of God could go into that portion of the temple, Jews and Gentiles. Then past that was the, the court of the women. Gentiles couldn't go in there. Only Jewish males and females could go into the court of the women. They could go in an, another layer of the onion. And then beyond that was the court of the males. Well, the women couldn't go in there. The, the, only the Jewish males got to go that close and... And then beyond the court of the males, uh, or court of the men, was the, the holy of holies. Not just any Jew could go in there. Only the high priest could go the, in there, and only once a year. This is like, a, like you're entering through layers of that onion. When you went to the temple, you would literally think about how you were drawing near to God. When you and I say that, it, it just doesn't mean, it doesn't, it doesn't hit the same. 
When you and I think of drawing near to God, we think of this spiritual sense in which we draw near to God, which is well and good. We should think that way. But when they spoke of drawing near to God in that time, it was much different. They thought about literally drawing near to God. We are going to travel from where we live to the temple to celebrate Passover, and we are going to literally draw near to God because the Holy of Holies in the center of that temple that only the high priest could go to, that represented God's presence on the earth. And so when you went to the temple, you were drawing near to God, but you could only draw so close. If you're a Gentile, you only got in that first door. If you're a Jewish woman, you only got past the second door. A Jewish male, you get past the third door. But then when you saw that 60-foot-tall curtain from the ceiling down to the floor that entered to the Holy of Holies, you wouldn't dare go in there. That's a big-time no-no. You'd die if you go in there. Only the high priest got to go in there, and only once a year. This was a very significant curtain, and it just tore from the top to the bottom. The 60-foot-tall curtain tore from the top to the bottom because something supernatural has happened, and it's packed with meaning. This literal supernatural event is packed with symbolic meaning that because of what Christ has done, he has provided ultimate atonement, the sacrifice of all sacrifices. It is finished it is as Hebrews, the book of Hebrews describes as the once for all sacrifice. He ended all of that. There's no more need for sacrifices. Tear that curtain down. We don't need that. We, the sacrificial system is obsolete, as it says in the book of Hebrews. The once for all sacrifice, the, the once for all atonement has been finished by Jesus on the cross. And so you and I, we don't need a priest to sacrifice anything for us. We don't need a priest. Jesus is our high priest. We don't need a sacrifice. We don't need to offer up anything to undo the sin in our life because Jesus, our high priest, offered himself as our sacrifice. Our high priest is our sacrifice, and it's sufficient to cover, up, cover all of our sins. It's, a, it's sufficient to atone for all of the mistakes that I've made in my life past present and future the thunder was right on cue right there <laughs> do not you know what it's not my argument I'm plagiarizing Hebrews chapter 10 if you don't like that argument go read Hebrews chapter 10 I plagiarize every Sunday when I preach I steal arguments from the Bible and use them on you <laughs> it's just pure plagiarism Hebrews chapter 10 is a great homework passage to go read but what Jesus accomplished it was perfect. It was sufficient. And it means that we can draw near to God in a way like the high priest used to. Not just a high priest can enter the Holy of Holies, not just a, uh, not, 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 not merely a, a Jewish male. The, the, all the Jews can go in there because of Jesus. All the women can go in there because of Jesus. Even the Gentiles can go in there. Even the Gentiles. That's what would have really been astounding. They could probably get over the Jewish males, the first century readers of this gospel when they were reading it for the first time. They could probably get over the women, even though that would have been a hard pill to swallow. Sorry, ladies, just the way it was, it's history. But to, for Gentiles, are you kidding me? And to drive that point home, listen to what happens next in verse 39. In verse 39, it says, and when the centurion, someone Roman, 
stood facing him, saw that, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. <laughs> this is the most shocking part of the paragraph for a first century Jewish person reading this. This is, this is crazy. So the execution squad, right? There would have been four executioners who would have carried out the uh, nailing of the prisoners on the cross, and they would have had a supervisor, and that was the centurion. And so the supervisor, who is just watching all of these events playing out, all of the details that we've been talking about and pausing to reflect upon, this man has been standing there or sitting on a horse perhaps, observing the darkness, everything. And as he's taking it all in, the conclusion that he draws is truly this man was the son of God. I mean, th these details, they're divinely inspired. They're, they're, me they're meant to be read by us and to prov provoke our hearts and minds to thought so that we can understand what Jesus is doing on that cross correctly. And so this is, a, this is a strange detail for me. Because again, when you, when you start thinking about it and, and you were seeing Jesus hanging on the cross with an inscription above his head that said, King of the Jews. And people, you know, believe that he's the Son of God, and, and, and you know there's a lot of um, turmoil and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, it was a scandal, right, to a lot of the people who were skeptic of these events. And as this man is witnessing all of these things, you would think that upon his death, he would conclude just the opposite. You would think that if the man that they're saying was King of the Jews the man that they're saying was the son of God, died, that that would cause you or convince you to think he's not, right? You would think that those, those details would repudiate the assertion that he is the king of the Jews, but yet those very details are what convince him that Jesus is the son of God. Now, obviously, this centurion, we don't know how much he knew about Jesus in that moment. I would wager that he probably couldn't write a doctoral dissertation on the Christology of Jesus or something like that. Um, th we know that th this was just very uh, a very small amount of details that he was witnessing and processing, but the conclusion that he came to, and this is the point, how much he knew about Christ in that moment isn't what Mark wants us to think about or, or, or dwell upon. He wants us to see that a man, a Roman centurion witnessed these events and upon witnessing these events the darkness and the death of jesus he understood that something of cosmic significance took place he probably couldn't couldn't explain it he probably didn't know all of the details he didn't know all of the history behind jesus up to that point but upon witnessing these events events that should have convinced him otherwise he was compelled to believe that jesus was in fact the Son of God. It's, it's astounding. And I think it's meant to make you and I think about these, this. You know, Jesus said and did so many amazing things, and we've spent 63 weeks studying all of the miracles of Jesus, studying the teachings of Jesus. But of all of those amazing things that he said that, and amazing things that he did that are all important, the central point of the gospel message is his death. And when you and I think about his death, we need to understand what that means for us. He is the ultimate Passover lamb sacrifice 
that ended all need for sacrifices in my life. There on the cross was Jesus, the Son of God, who was made a curse for us. We live in a broken world, a cursed world in which sin is rampant. And Jesus was made to be sin by the Father on the cross so that you and I could be seen as righteous. See, when your sins are atoned for, you're clean. When, you're, when your sins, when, when, when there has been just wrath upon your sins, you are seen as clean before God. Your sins have been washed away. You are seen as righteous. If your sins have been atoned for, when you stand before God, how do you think that will make him feel about you? Well, he will see perfection before him. You know, we read that catechism to, uh, to start our service earlier. The law demands perfection, and we clearly are far from that. I can't even get the details of the service right, let alone live up to the law. Because of the, the atonement of Christ, I am made perfect. So you and I live in the same state in which we're simultaneously sinful, but yet perfectly righteous. Between here and the other side, between here and death, I am living in this existence with a broken heart and mind, that I deal with sin, I hate it, I know it's bad, but I give in to it daily. It's just, I'm, I'm a sinful human being. And it's, it's by the grace of God that I can repent and pursue holiness at all. But I do those things to glorify God, not to convince God to love me, because the work of atonement has been completed. And so when I get to eternity, when I get to the judgment seat and stand before God, like all of you will one day, I'm not going to be hoping in anything that I did. I'm not going to be hoping, boy, I hope I tip the scales just enough. I hope the good deeds way more than the bad deeds, because there's so many more bad deeds. So I just hope my good deeds way, I hope they're really heavy. And they outdid all the bad stuff. I don't, I, we don't have to think like that. We're instructed not to think like that. We're prone to think like that, but the Bible corrects us over and over to know that the work of atonement was completed. It is finished. That's why his death means everything to us. That's why his death is the solution to our death dilemma. Because when we stand before God after death, we're in a big dilemma about sin. Because he is perfect and we are not. Until belief in Christ. Jesus said this is what would happen. The, the conversion of the centurion soldier is the beginning of what is still happening today. Jesus prophesied in John chapter 12 this. He said, and I, and he's speaking of his death on the, on the cross. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Even Gentiles? Yes. And as soon as he li is lifted up on that cross and takes, takes his, his last breath, Immediately, that starts kicking into gear. People start believing. People are inexplicably drawn. The work of the Holy Spirit starts to do something in the hearts and minds of people, and it's been doing that since that time. It's still happening right now. People are still being drawn to Jesus in a way that they can't even really even put into words a lot of times. They're living a life of sin. They're, they're living a life that doesn't know all the details, just like that centurion soldier who probably was barbaric considering all of the things.
things that they would have been involved in as we studied, you know, the, the torture and the mockery of Jesus. I mean, these guys were savages. But yet, those are the type of people that Jesus draws to himself. Like you and I, we get so distracted and worn out in this life of sin, and yet somehow, inexplicably at times, we find ourselves right back here at the gospel message. You're worn out. How, how am I going to live another day in this sinful world? How am I going to make it, let alone be loved by God? It's Jesus. That's the answer. That's, that's the reconciliation that we have in this cross that sustains us, that redeems us, that gives us salvation, that helps us to endure in these times of agony that we live. So we can, we can be there too. We can be in the agony and we can be feeling, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is this so miserable here? And we can think about the death of Jesus on that cross and how he came back to that confidence. He, was, he never left it like you and I do. But he emphasized that, that confidence in God and he is working out his perfect will in our lives. And so as we are drawn back to God by the Holy Spirit from our sinful lives, we remember that God loves us. I didn't do anything to deserve being drawn back here. Some of you feel like when you come at church on Sunday, like you were dragged here. <laughs> I think that's the Holy Spirit at work in the hearts of the family around you, maybe to drag you here. But in your own heart and mind as well. What a joy it is that Jesus is the answer that we need. He's the answer to our death dil dilemma. He is our Savior and he is our King. And because of him, we have this hope to live with. It's one, someday we will live in an existence. It seems, again, just like that funeral I preached yesterday, eternity seems impossibly far away right now, doesn't it? I don't know, maybe not for some of you. You're, some of you are kind of old. But it's, it seems impossibly far away. It's never going to get here. But we have this existence that is before us, free from sin. Because of what Christ did, I will live in an existence in which I don't, I, I don't even... Possibly I don't even think about atonement anymore because I'm living free from sin. I don't even know how that's all going to work. When I try to imagine it, I can't even imagine how I would think in that existence because how I think is so corrupt and broken. How can I think there? I'll ruin it. He's going to make us new. He's going to make all of creation new. And we get to live apart from all the pain, all the suffering, all the sorrow that sin brings upon us in this world. That's the hope that we get to live with. Because we have an answer to this existence. It's the death of Jesus that gives us that hope. So put your hope and your faith in that today and feel the spiritual nutrients that's there to strengthen you. You may feel really weak today. Be strengthened. This is how you're strengthened to endure. Meditate upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then we'll go into a time of communion. Lord, again, I thank you for a church family that is willing to look into the details of scripture so rich with meaning the, the, the symbolism there is just striking in this paragraph from the darkness to the centurion soldier Lord I, I pray that when we think about the cross it wouldn't just be this superficial uh, symbol that's just really common in our culture I pray for those of us who claim to be followers of you that when we see the symbol of the cross, it has great meaning. It means everything to us. 
Lord, help, help us as we, as we see this mechanism of death to remember what a profound truth we have to think about. Lord, you atoned for all of our sins. Just, it leaves us speechless. We're seen as perfectly righteous before you right now. Lord, what a miracle. Thank you for the salvation we have through the cross. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.